Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we are concluding our series this evening on the theme of the body as it appears in Roman in Romans, <clears throat> and I will read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, and then we'll flip over and read a couple of verses from chapter 16. But again, our, uh, uh, for the most part, our focus will be on verses 1 and 2, although we will have reference to, um, to all the verses which we read this evening. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. And then if you would flip over to chapter 16, we'll read verses 3 and 4. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. And then skipping down to verse 17, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, or their own bodies, and by their smooth and, uh, excuse me, their own bellies, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, of, of, Lord, of our Lord Jesus, be with you. <clears throat> Can I really love him that much? This is a question that may come to mind as we consider the exhortation that Paul gives in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. 
Now, this is a well-known verse. Many of you are quite familiar with it. And in hearing it so frequently, it may be that you have come to hear those words and, and think about that verse without really stopping to think about what is being described in that statement of presenting one's body as a sacrifice. It's a similar statement to what Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we think about taking up our cross, but do we stop for a minute to think what that demands of us? That to present our bodies as a living sacrifice or to take up one's cross and follow Jesus is a path in which, if not the final destination, at least as a waypoint, there is death. That in this exhortation, there is a call not only to love God with our bodies, but to love God more than our bodies. So as we stop and we consider what we are being called to in these verses, we would do, uh, do well to ask the question, can I really love him that much? How can I love him that much? The body is so close to us. It is so dear to us. And it is so much a, a part of our existence that to love another and to love God with and then more than our own body is a difficult thing to do. So as we think about this command to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, we'll take it up in in three points, and as we think about how is it that, that we are enabled to do this, uh, we'll look at it under uh, three points. First, the involvement of the mind, the heart and mind, that presenting our bodies as a sacrifice to God includes, in a very central way, the participation of our mind. Secondly, we'll look at the idea that as Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God will include bodily discomfort or bodily pain even. And then third, we'll look at presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God as including a, a social or an, uh, a churchly dimension to it. That we are not just uh, lone, isolated individuals as we seek to carry out this command, but that we are a community. We are one body and even members of one another in Jesus Christ. So first, though, let us consider that presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice includes the mind and heart. Now, throughout this series, we have said much about the human body, but I hope that has not left you with the impression that the heart and the mind and the soul I hope that has not left you with the impression that that is unimportant. Rather, 
Simply our emphasis has been on the body, but now we come to a passage in which we must also deal very much with the heart and the mind as it relates to how we use our bodies. So first, look at the text and see how the the mind uh, appears in this. Uh, Paul says that this presentation of our bodies as a sacrifice uh, is our spiritual service of worship or our reasonable service or our rational service. The word there entails and uh, describes something of the inner man, that that rational uh, principle within us. And then in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That as we seek to go about presenting our bodies to God, that the mind is deeply involved, the heart is deeply involved in how we go about and do this. The heart is the, the engine, so to speak, that animates the body and directs the body towards a certain end. We need the Spirit's empowerment to do this, but the Spirit works in concert with renewing our minds so that our minds are engaged as we present this worship to God with our bodies. And it's important that we remember that this is uh, so much a part of the sacrifice, is the engagement of our our hearts and our minds, that we're not just uh, conforming our bodies to some moral standard without that transformed and renewed heart. This morning we we heard about the just-do-it religions. Well, there's a just-do-it kind of way of trying to offer one's body as a sacrifice. A list of things that I I know I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to go do it, but I don't have the right heart behind it. I don't have the right mind behind it. Rather, it's a a heart and a mind which is not properly oriented towards God in faith and love. We can think of the Apostle's words elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, If I give give away all that I have, If I deliver up my body to be burned, but don't have love, I gain nothing. And we can consider, if we could read uh, Romans 12 in light of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we could say something like this. If I endeavor to present my body as a sacrifice, but if I don't have faith, if, if I, I try to lead a moral life with my body, if I try to have a body that, that in an outward way conforms to the law of God, but I do not have faith in Jesus Christ, I profit nothing. If I try to present my body in self-reliance, if I try to present my body and uh, conform it to the law, but do so out of self-reliance and arrogance. I profit nothing. That if my approach to the law, if my approach to this moral use of the body in the service of God is not through faith in the Messiah, 
but is instead through self-reliance, it profits me nothing. This was the experience of Paul before his conversion. An approach to the law of God without faith in the Messiah. And he, in all kinds of outward ways, may have used his bodily morally, although we know that even that is not the case, that he used his body to imprison and to uh, cast votes for the death of Christians. That a mere outward use of the body without faith profits us nothing as we seek to offer our bodies to God. Or if we try to offer our bodies, but it's always out of a fear. Will this please God? Have I pleased God enough? If I offer myself to God in this way, if I use my body in this way, is that enough? And if that is the attitude, and it's not an attitude of faith in the Messiah, to say that the Messiah and the life that he lived in his body is what satisfies and pleases God, then this way of trying to justify myself before God in the body is not the acceptable sacrifice that he's looking for. This is not the pleasing sacrifice that 12.1 calls us to offer. It is the sacrifice of his son. And then it's that loving response of thankfulness through faith in his son through which we then offer ourselves in an acceptable and pleasing way to God. And similarly, with respect to love, if we present our bodies as a sacrifice but have not love, if we do the right thing but we do so because we are envious, I want to exalt myself, I want to show everybody how holy and righteous I am, I want to appear as righteous in the eyes of men, and I want to gain the praise of men, and I want people to think well of me and to praise me. But I'm not offering this service out of love to God. Well, then that would make me a Pharisee and a hypocrite. Going through the outward actions, but without a heart, without a mind, that is engaged in this genuine service to God in thankfulness for what he has done for me through Jesus. So the mind is a central part of this sacrifice of ourselves that we offer. Note furthermore that the mind is moved by the mercies of God. The mind is moved by the mercies of God. That as we are called to use our bodies in a certain way, in a way that is holy, in a way that is uh, acceptable and pleasing to God, that the, the motivation that we're presented with is not, again, simply a bare command, just go do it. But it's by the mercies of God that Paul appeals to Romans and through which scripture appeals to us to use our bodies in this way. The mind, the heart is wooed by the mercies of God in Christ. Look at what God has done for sinners. Look at what God has done for sinners who used their bodies 
in the basest kinds of ways. He gave the body of his own son. He sent his own son, taking to himself a a rational soul and body, and in his person, Jesus offered a sacrifice for sin to reconcile us to God. In light of God's mercies, that he would send his son to do that, that his son would love us, even to the point of death, and that God would give us a share in his son. And that to obtain a share in his son, God does not require anything of us except faith. And that even that faith is a gift of God. In light of the mercies of God, is not the mind, is not the heart wooed? Is it not drawn to this God? Is that not what is going to enable us to begin to carry out this exhortation of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? Is not, isn't it that which, which has the persuasive power as the Spirit enables us and persuades us to receive that gospel message? The engagement of the mind is further seen in the way that we use the mind to discern what is pleasing to God. Looking again at verse 2, we read, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That it's the renewed mind that is able to discern what God's will is. It is the mind that is not wise in its own eyes, the mind that is always going back to Scripture, always going back to what God has revealed, always going back to God's words, God's truth, and submitting to it, always going back to the gospel message and then the implications of the gospel, the commands that flow from it, in trying to seek and discern how should I live in, in light of this revelation? How should I live in light of what God has said? And so the mind is, is necessary to, to discern what is pleasing. Now we have the general principles that are given to us in scripture. We have the moral law that's given to us. But in life we're going to meet so many circumstances where we're going to say, I have no idea. I have no idea what the right thing to do is in this situation because it's complex and the, the, the situation is messy and I'm not sure. And a renewed mind does not say, oh, I know, this feels right. But in humility, goes to God, asks for wisdom, confesses weakness, and searches God's word for, for some light, some guidance that would, would illumine the situation. So that we might then proceed with presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, secondly, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice means that often 
we will experience physical discomfort. Certainly holiness is a matter of the heart, the way the heart thinks, what the heart believes. But holiness comes out in actions. Holiness uh, expresses itself through living a certain kind of way. And as soon as we begin to live a certain way, we, we implicate the body. Right? The soul doesn't, uh, in this life, the soul does not uh, go about exercising its, its functions independently of the body, but, but through the body. In other words, holiness will often hurt. You can think of all kinds of ways in which holiness will hurt. You can think of those Christians who are persecuted and even martyred for their witness. When the world asks them uh, what they believe and whom they believe and whom they put their confidence in, whom they serve, and if the world hates uh, their answer and hates the one whom they serve, that will also that, that hatred will be directed not only towards Christ, but also towards Christ's people. And there are occasions uh, throughout the world and throughout history in which Christ's people are called to bear witness, to be holy, and they have to hurt for that. Their bodies have to experience excruciating pain. And so Christians are persecuted, beaten, whipped. Think of the life of the Apostle Paul and all that he suffered. And think of the Christians who have been killed, as Paul was as well. But you can think of something that might be closer to home, something like fasting. There is a season or occasion where fasting is appropriate, and you want to draw near to God in a time of, of prayer and fasting, and you uh, seek to do this in a, a holy way, uh, you'll find that you begin to hunger. And in being hungry, you begin to think, well, maybe I should just go eat something. And yet in that time of committing yourself, your time, and your prayers to the Lord, you must endure a bodily discomfort. Or you can think of uh, parents who must wake up in the middle of the night to take care of their sick children. And it's not comfortable. It hurts. It would be much more comfortable to stay in bed and to sleep. And yet part of ordinary holiness, part of an ordinary uh, renewed life as God has called us to live it, includes at the expense of our own comfort, at the expense of our own bodily comfort, getting out of bed, walking down the hallway, and giving of ourselves for our children. Or you can think of the bodily discomfort that comes from saying no to ungodly bodily passions. Appetites that are misdirected, and so you must put them in check, and you must say no to them. And yet in saying no to them, you find, nevertheless, that the appetite is still there, and that you have to keep saying no. And for as long as you say no, you experience some kind of bodily discomfort. And it hurts. But the restraint of lust 
and anger and overindulgence and laziness hurts. That one who is not used to using the body in, in the way that it should be in, in service to the Lord finds it much easier to recline on the couch all day. Yet he desires to begin to lead a holy life. He desires to begin to present his body to God as a holy sacrifice. And he comes to the conclusion that part of this examining scripture is that having gone to the ant, I am to no longer be a sluggard. And so he is animated and he's eager to begin diligently working in whatever God has called him to. But as he begins to do so, he finds that his body isn't acclimated to such work. He finds that holiness hurts sometimes. There is something about the way God has made us as creatures that it's with the body, that it is through loving others at the expense of our own bodies that, that God seems to have made the world to work. So you can think of the creation of Eve from Adam's rib. For the creation of the first woman, there must be the loss of a part of Adam's body. Or you can think of a, a pregnant mother or a nursing child. And the mother quite literally gives of the substance of her own body to give life to the child so that the child can be nourished and grow. That each one of us here has received our, our, our life in a physical way because somebody else gave of their own bodies to us. Or we can think of Prisca and Aquila in chapter 16 where Paul says that they gave their necks or offered their necks, subjected their necks for my life. That Prisca and Aquila take a part of their body which is very vulnerable and which if damaged uh, is fatal. And they do this for the apostle's life and for which the apostle and the church of the Gentiles thank them. And thinking through these leads us, of course, to Jesus Christ, who gave his body for our life. That in going to the cross for us, this is the means by which he secured for us eternal life and the gift of himself, including the gift of his body at the cross. So as we ask this question, can I really love him that much? We must also ask ourselves another question. Has he really loved me that much? Has God really loved me that much? That he would take to himself a body. And we all know how near and dear a body is to us. It's, it's so close to us. No man ever hated his own flesh. And yet God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, loves sinners more than his own body. That he goes to the cross. That he is willing to put off the body for a season for our redemption that Jesus gives his body for sinners, that he gives all of 
himself for sinners, but again, focusing on our theme of the body. The opposite of this, by the way, is loving your own body at the expense of others. These are the, the false teachers that we saw in, in chapter 16 who do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but who serve their own bellies, who seek to satisfy the desires of their own body at the expense of others. And this leads to destruction. And yet the Christian's call is in union with Christ and in imitation of Christ to do the opposite, to rather love one another and to love God at the expense of our own bodies. Now thirdly, <clears throat> there is a, a corporate dimension to our offering of ourselves as a sacrifice, a, a communal dimension within the church Verses 1 and 2 are, are something of a general heading for all of the, the exhortation which Paul gives in these chapters. And he very quickly moves from talking about presenting our bodies as a sacrifice to talking of the church as being the body of Christ. And of the church uh, being members of one another in Christ. As embodied creatures, we are meant for communion with other humans. As embodied creatures, we are uh, designed for interactions with other people. We see this from Genesis. It's not good for the man to be alone. We see this from all of human society, always living in some kind of communal way. And we find that in the church, we find this in a, in a, a particular and most true way, that we become members of one another, that we are one body. And so that as we seek to honor God with our lives, that this is not just something that we carry out with individual actions in a private way, but it characterizes all of our interactions together as a congregation. That the way we interact with each other is part of the way we uh, fulfill this command to present our bodies as a sacrifice. That Paul uh, thus smoothly moves from one understanding of the body to a larger corporate understanding of the bodies together in one body, the body of Christ. And the particular application <clears throat> that he makes is for each member to uh, contribute uh, in a measure consistent with his gifting. That as we think about our human bodies, our face is not covered with eyes, we just have two. Our face is not covered with ears, we just have two. And they are very well situated where they are. We don't have uh, uh, an ear where our nose is and another ear where our mouth is and two more where our eyes are. But the whole, the whole body is, is framed in a way, gifted in a way that is suitable and serves for the building up of the body together. And so as we seek to carry out this command, we are not to despise one another when we see other people serving in different ways than ourselves. We're not to look at another person and say, oh, well, if that person were really offering their body as a sacrifice, they would be doing the exact same thing that I'm doing in this situation. 
that there are, there's a, a, a multiple gifting that God has given. And so some will serve in a way that is very uh, unobserved behind the scenes. Perhaps they will serve uh, uh, silently, uh, as, as Paul mentions, in, in giving. And perhaps they're, they're very discreet about it. And yet they give with liberality. And yet there's somebody else who has another gift, uh, somebody who teaches, and so they, they teach. And the gifts are variously distributed, and the body is not to despise others because of this diversity. Rather, this is part of what it is to be one body in Jesus Christ as we seek to offer ourselves together as a sacrifice. So congregation, <clears throat> as we wrap up this series on the theme of the body, I would once again uh, point you to the mercy of God in Christ, that Jesus Christ is yours, that he has given his body for you, and that he is now seeking to transform you after his own image. That there are two warring powers, sin and the Messiah, that both seek dominion in the body. And that sin, when it seeks dominion, produces immoral actions through the body and ultimately corruption, death, and draws the wrath of God. But when the Messiah reigns, by his spirit, he transforms the use of the body to its proper moral end. And in due time, he will glorify our bodies, raising us up, even as we participate uh, with Christ now in his sufferings even as we participate with Christ now in following his example of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for all that he is to us, that he is our king, that he is our friend, that he is our brother, and that corporately speaking, he is our head and he is our husband. And we rejoice in this and for all that Christ is for us, for us in our souls and for us in our bodies. We pray these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat>